Good morning, everybody. All right. For those that want to follow along or put the words up there, uh, we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, 7 to 13. And while you're looking that up, I'll, uh, I'll ask you to imagine you're going on holiday, right? Now, my boys would love to go to Disneyland, so we'll use Disneyland. I don't know where we're going to find the money to make that dream come true, but it's good to dream. Let's say Jade and I somehow do come across sufficient money to travel to America and we get on the plane, we find a nice hotel to stay in. It could be a nice hotel because it's a fantasy anyway. So we might as well make it a nice one. Absolutely, five stars. The penthouse suite, marble columns, why not? All right. Anyway, that's where you're going to stay and we go to Disneyland. So we go to Disneyland and we arrive there and we get our tickets and we go through the turnstile. But here's the thing, once we go through the turnstile, we sit down. We sit down on a corner and we spend the whole day sitting there on the corner and that's all we do in Disneyland. So that we can say to all our friends, hey, we went to Disneyland. We're surrounded by rides and restaurants and gardens and parks and photo opportunities with any cartoon character you can think of, but we just sit there. You'd think I was mad, wouldn't you? Why would you spend all that money and make all that effort to go there and do nothing? The thing is, a lot of Christians I see make me scratch my head. They say the sinner's prayer and then they sit on their bum. And it's no better than going to Disneyland and sitting inside the gate. There's so much God's got for us. They say, oh, well, I'm saved, aren't I? Isn't that enough? They're nuts. So today, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going beyond God's blessing and into God's purposes. All the wonderful things in the kingdom of God that are beyond the gate. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 to 13 say, I became a servant of this gospel. This is Paul talking, by the way. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, us lot, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of his mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. How's that? I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. 
So Paul was in a bit of a spot of bother with the Roman government at the time that this letter was written. Um, I can't remember whether it was house arrest or full arrest at this time, but um, he was not popular with Caesar. Um, Many of the apostles weren't. So Paul is a servant of the gospel. He serves the gospel. The gospel doesn't serve him. This is despite his past failings and regrets. Uh, Those of you who know Paul's story know that he was not a very nice person in the beginning. Um, He used to hunt down Christians and kill them and persecute the ones that he couldn't quite get to kill. So you can understand why he thinks he's the least of all. Um, that past seems to hang over his head in a few of his letters. Yet God has called him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and I, for one, am grateful for that. If it wasn't for him doing that, the gospel wouldn't have made it all the way to Australia where I could hear it. So what is this gospel? Well, the gospel comes in two distinct halves separated by a cross in the middle. In the first half, we find that Christ has died. All right? On the cross, Jesus took our sins and he paid the penalty for us. So in this, he accomplishes two things. Okay? He dies for us. The word for is important. He dies for us, paying our penalty, restoring our relationship with God the Father, so that we can be in communion with him, that we can be in right relationship. He was the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. He was fully divine in order to be able to do this because he had to have no sin himself. And yet by his blood we are brought into God's family. Possessed, if you will. We are cleansed of our sins and now we have a right relationship with him. We are given eternal life. Secondly, Jesus didn't just die for us, he died as us. Fully human, as human as I am. So Jesus takes care of the sinful self. Not merely just does away with the sins and pays the penalty for the sins, but also the cause of the sin. That's nailed to the cross. The corrupted human nature is restored in Christ. Our old nature and our old self is taken care of. It's gone. It is, as he said in his final words, finished. If anyone should come after me, he should take up his cross and follow me. Take up that cross and put to death the sinful nature. But that's not all there is. We don't stop there. He is risen. Anyone can die, and lots of people do. It's It's a very popular thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, especially people who are born and have a tendency to die, right? So Jesus dying in and of itself is not that special. But what is special is what he did three days later. The firstborn from among the dead. 
So the old has gone, the new has come. Christ now lives and he lives in us by virtue of his Holy Spirit. Where once we, before we had a bias towards sin and evil and wickedness, now the Holy Spirit grants us a bias towards holiness and righteousness and goodness. We are given abundant life that we might live abundantly. And of course, he lives through us. Now, while I take issue with certain Catholic doctrines, there is one Catholic, or one or two Catholics I do appreciate, and one of them is Teresa of Calcutta, who said, he has no hands but these hands. He lives through us. He works in the world today by virtue of his church. That's the way he's chosen to do things. And that gives us a great responsibility. So the gospel is a lot more than people give it credit for. Yes, Jesus saves us from our sins and their consequence. But there is more to it than that. He also deals with the fallen nature of humanity and the natural inclination towards sin. But to what end? To be nice people? have the odd cafe church oh it's more than that we see in verses 10 and 11 that God wants to make his manifold wisdom known through the church you lot, me the other church down the road he'd like them involved too According to the eternal purpose he accomplished in Christ. This is partly the gospel that I just outlined. But Christ also laid a foundation for his church. All of that gospel was a foundation for the church, the means by which he works in the world. So while God provides individual salvation as we all choose to accept Christ's invitation. The purposes of God, however, is to draw us into a community. We don't stay individual for long. That we may be one with him as he and the Father are one. So there are four purposes that I see that God has called the church to be. Firstly, the church is a body. Not just a body corporate in a legal sense, but we are the body of Christ. Like I said before, these are his hands. We are his body. We are his presence in the world. Individually, we all reveal a part of Christ's character. He's given us all different personalities, different gifts, talents, abilities. But corporately, communally, Do we reveal his fullness? A hand is a useful thing, is it not? But it's not much use if I chop it off and just have the hand by itself. Right? The hand gains its use by being part of a larger body. If all the body was a nose, 
we'd smell. If all the body were an eye, we'd be a monster. But each part of the body works together. Only in community do we reveal the fullness of God. And the fullness of God is love. Oh, there's faith and there's hope, but the greatest is love. God is love and love demands expression through togetherness. What's the point of saying, I love Jade, my darling wife, if I do nothing about it? If I ignore her and she just sits in the corner wondering why she even bothered getting married, you know? No! My love demands expression. I've got to write poems and buy flowers and treat her nice. You know, at least sometimes. All right. Love demands expression. And God is love and he demands expression and he's chosen the church as his means of expression. Earlier on in Ephesians, in chapter 1, Paul writes, And God placed all things under his feet, that's Christ, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The second thing the church is called to be is a temple. Now I know that the original temple got destroyed by the Babylonians and then they built a second one which got destroyed by the Romans. But there's, we are, if you like, the third temple. And good luck getting rid of us. So what is a temple? A temple is a house for a god. If you go to the temple of Jupiter, you'll find a big old idol in there that looks like Jupiter. The god, not the planet that the god is named after. That is named after the god. Um, it was king of the Roman gods, Jupiter. You can in fact go to the Pantheon in Rome and it's a big dome with a hole in the roof and there's all the old, all the old idols there. That's what a, that is what a temple is. We are God's temple. Since God's spirit is in us, and we are the church, then the church is God's temple. It's where you go to find God. And God's plan is to reveal his glory over the whole earth. Therefore, as the church expands to every nation, people and language group, so God's glory expands through his church. As Habakkuk prophesied, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal, ladies and gentlemen. That's why missions is important. God wants his glory to cover the earth. Like water covers the sea. No water, no sea. God wants to permeate the whole world. So we're a body, we're a temple, we are a city. What on earth is a city? Well, it's more than just a bunch of buildings and roads. If that's all you've got, then you've got a ghost town. The buildings exist for the people who are the city. A city is a community of people who come together with a purpose. 
And there's a purpose. Some cities are industrial cities. And most of the people there work in factories and workshops. Some cities, like Melbourne, is a harbour city. And Melbourne's economy runs around Port Melbourne, basically, and and the harbour there. You take away the harbour and Melbourne will die. And it'll shrink and shrivel. You know, different cities have different purposes. The church is also a city. It is the city of God and we come together with a single purpose. And the purpose is to celebrate the goodness of God and to express his glory. And that's where all our work revolves around. The church is the city that Abraham and all the Bible heroes of old longed for. As the book of Hebrews says, By faith he, Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, his descendants, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We are what Abraham hoped would be. Now, hope is looking down and smiling and Enjoying to see the fulfilment of his dream too. The fourth thing the church is, is a bride. We are called to be the bride of Christ. This describes the quality of our relationship with God. First, we are servants. Serving God, obeying his rules and commands the way a servant should. Then he calls us his friends. And now, post-resurrection, he calls us his bride. You can see that Christ is moving us closer and closer to God, closer and closer to intimacy. And that's what being a bride speaks of. It speaks of love and intimacy and unity. God's goal is to present to Christ a radiant church filled with his glory. I'm going to read you a description that John came up of the bride. From the book of Revelation. Revelation 21.9. And we start off. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and he said to me, John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Here's what she looks like, folks. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The bride is the new Jerusalem. It shone with the glory of God and his brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you want to get into this bride, you need to go through Abraham and his kids. There were three great gates on the east, three on the north, three the south, and three the west. You can come to God from any direction. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There we go. Abraham is the gate, and the apostles are our foundation. God has called us not just to be saved, but to participate in his work. And this work of God is to make his wisdom known and to cover the whole earth in his glory. If you can turn on the news and see things that don't glorify God, 
then you know that there's still work to do. And it is corporately, as a church community, that God calls us to make his glory known. The church universal around the whole world. Waddle City Church, this neighbourhood. So how do we respond to this call that God has given us? We spread God's glory by living lives filled with love. Oh, it always comes back to love. There are five directions of love. I always keep saying this, don't I? Five directions of love, right? First, we love God with everything we've got. Heart and soul. Okay, mind, strength, the whole works, every fibre. Then we love our neighbour as we love ourselves. You've got to love both. You can't love your neighbour properly if you hate yourself. And you've got no business hating yourself. Now, I know some people think that self-love is arrogant, so I'm going to address this, all right? It's not arrogant to love yourself. It's godly. If God loves you and you want to be like God and you want to imitate him, then you have to love you too. All right? Now, I'm a creative person. I like to do watercolour paintings. If someone insults my artwork, they're insulting me because there's something of me in that painting. There's something of God in you. You were created as his workmanship. In fact, the word workmanship there that Paul uses is actually poema. You're a poem. You're poetry in motion. Okay? You insult the poetry, you insult the poet. If you love God, you're going to have to love yourself. Okay? You don't always have to love some of the things you do because... We're not always good all the time. But we love ourselves. And we've got to learn to see ourselves through God's eyes and see what he sees. So we love God. We love our neighbour. We love as we love ourselves. Then we love one another as Christ loved us. Christ was willing to give up anything for us. He set aside his glory and humbled himself as a tradies kid. All right? He lived an ordinary life and he was even willing to lay down his life for our sake. So how could we not imitate him then? That we set aside our love of glory and humble ourselves for each other. That we are willing to do anything for each other. And then the last way we love is to love our enemies. And sometimes that's like nails on a blackboard. But but did God not to set that example as well? That while we were yet his enemies, he laid down his life for us. That he loved us enough. So let us do that too. Let us love our enemies. Let us repay evil with good. Let us repay curses with blessings. An eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. You've got to stop somewhere. So let the buck stop with us. I mean, how do we love the unlovely? I mean, what about people who irritate or anger us? But when have we not done that to God? So if we can receive God's mercy, do they not deserve mercy as well? Let's not end up like Jonah, who had a pity party because God wouldn't destroy Nineveh. Okay, let's avoid that. 
Let's be like Abraham who rejoiced when Sodom, when his lot came out of Sodom. So we may approach God with freedom and confidence, it says here, through Christ. Through Christ and through faith in Christ, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. From him, we gain power through the Holy Spirit. We start a reciprocal relationship. We accept God's love and then we reflect it back to him. It's easy to be grateful for salvation, if nothing else. But there is so much more that God has done for us. He's given us life. There are miracles. There are prophecies. There are signs and wonders. By loving God back, we create a feedback loop of loving and being loved that spills over into our other relationships. (coughs) Then it is easy to love one another and create the community that establishes the church. This community of love. And that's what transforms the world. And that's what reveals God's glory. It even it does empower us to love our enemies. Now, I'm not saying you have to be a doormat to them. Jesus didn't put up with any guff and neither should you. He was ready to tell the Pharisees where to draw the line. But we don't reply out of spite. We reply out of love. So the great purpose of God is to display his glory over the whole earth. And the purpose of the church is to work with God to that end. This is chiefly done as a community of love. For God is love and a church without love is without God. And if we are without God, then how can we make his glory known? Therefore, live lives of love. Everything else works towards that end. All the spiritual gifts of power are about expressing love. Okay? If you try to use those gifts without love, it's like going like this all day. You want that all day? That's what prophecy without love is like, according to Paul. It's a clanging symbol. It's a headache waiting to happen. All right? Sorry, Evie, if you were nodding off there. All right? You've got to have love. All the gifts in the world are useless without love. No one wants a mean-spirited prophet. Coming back to Jonah again, aren't I? All right. What's the point of doing miracles for people if you're not going to love them? Oh, yeah, fine, I'll heal you. There you go. What sort of witness is that going to be? All right. The gospel is the saving work of Jesus Christ. Not only has it saved us from sin, but it has saved us to the purpose of God. We haven't just been pulled out of the fire, but we've been pulled into a right relationship. A life of love to display his glory. Since love is a relationship, we cannot do it by ourselves and individuals. And I know we've all been raised in an individualistic society that's all about me making my needs. We've got to put that aside. We can only love when we are in a community. The purpose of the church is to be that community. 
Individually, we are mere stones, but together we are a temple. When we come together, we become the new Jerusalem, the great city of God, prepared as a bride for Christ. So I encourage you and I exhort you, live lives of radical love. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast by Wattle City Church. If you Google Wattle City Church, you'll find us on Anchor, Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, and a whole bunch of other platforms. Feel free to listen. We pray that you'll be encouraged by this message and by other messages that you listen to. We praise God and we pray blessings upon you in Jesus' name. Amen.